0: Welcome to video store my name is Sam Mulberry today we are talking about the nineteen sixty seven film la Le samurai let's step into Baird Fisher's video store Baird how you doing I'm doing great um let's just start off with uh with your history with uh with this film uh is this something that you saw uh a long time ago is this something you saw recently
1: yeah i think probably 10 to 15 years ago i i went through a really intense period of watching a lot of noirs both classic hollywood noirs and then um neo-noirs or noirs otherwise influenced by the hollywood genre so i probably first watched it um uh the criterion collection like i said probably 10 to 15 years ago and it was just part of trying to become a little bit more um familiar with the genre and the variations of the genre or style whatever we want to call it
0: right i will say this uh this film proves the influence of doing this podcast on me which is like the first couple of noirs we watched i was always wondering well what exactly is like is noir i watched this and i was like yep i totally see how this relates to other things we've we've watched other things we've talked about so i feel like this uh like we, I think I full, I've reached the idea where I can recognize it. I can at least recognize a noir when I'm seeing it. <laughs> so that seems like a good place to be. Um, who is uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, and how does he fit into uh, French New Wave? Because we, when we talked about yeah. Uh, Godard,
1: yeah, we uh, we met Melville uh, in Breathless, of course, as as an actor. Uh, he was playing that novelist. that was being interviewed at the airport. He's, the, he's kind of considered the godfather of New Wave in, I would say, two kind of distinctive ways. One is that he clearly operated as an auteur. Um, there, there's no doubt in terms of the distinctive stamp that he put on his films that degree to which he controlled his films. And secondly, along those lines, he actually built his own studio. So as much as possible, he operated outside of the French film system that the New Wave uh, the new wave directors were so uh, critical of. Um, his first film is very early, *The Silence of the Sea* from 1949, and some people kind of consider it the the harbinger of uh, of the new wave because he shot on location uh, and he did it as I said outside the studio system. Uh, in terms of a direct influence on Godard, he was the one. I don't know if I said if I said this when we talked about *Breathless*, but when I talked about Godard shortening the film by just simply cutting and creating those uh, distinctive jump cuts, that was at Melville's suggestion. Uh, Godard was like, I don't know how to make the film shorter. And Melville said, well, I want you to just cut stuff. Uh, and that's what Godard did. So he's both a, uh, an influence on the new wave. He's an actor in the new wave film. He's sort of served sort of as an editor for the uh, seminal new wave film. So that's, that's how he's kind of all over. And I guess the other way in which I would say he's an influence on the new wave is because like a lot of the other new wave directors, he is so interested in classic Hollywood films. Um, Because as we've talked about in the past, after World War II and even during World War II, there were all these French cinema clubs that watched a lot of American films. And Melville, uh, he was going to the cinema two or three times a day uh, and just completely absorbing, especially uh, American gangster films of the 30s and 40s.
0: That, that makes a lot of sense, because as I watch this, if I compare this to Breathless, Breathless has uh, has the quality of being somebody's first film. Um, you know, like, like really, um, in some ways, like trying things out, experimenting a little bit more. This feels like it's made by somebody who has been around the block a few times in terms of kind of how it's constructed, how um, intentional some of the shots are, uh, think about that opening scene that kind of long lingering opening scene um, this feels like a like maybe a more seasoned filmmaker but still in the same vein as something like like Godard in uh in breathless um so if we think about this there there's clearly multiple influences on this uh there's definitely a noir influence and we can talk about that um, and then also you know, the name definitely implies that there's another big influence um, in this as well. So maybe starting with noir, um, what are the ways that this fu- functions as a noir, and what are the things that maybe um, uh, point to it being something other than purely just a noir film?
1: Yeah, I think you know, I think one of the ways in which it points to noir is uh, th- th- there's a number of kind of Hollywood films that you could actually look at as being. Quite uh, as being almost a direct influence on the film, and one of them I would think of is a very early noir, um, often not classified even as a noir, from 1942 called This Gun for Hire, uh, which is Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake, and the notion of of the hired gun, um, and that film in itself was actually. Um, Based on a Graham Greene novel, uh, so we're back to Graham Greene and his influence on, on the films. So I think that the, so I think the notion of he's not a he's not a detective as you often get in noirs, but he is kind of a he is kind of a, high, a hired gun, and he very much um, affects a kind of uh, a kind of Bogart persona. Uh, he doesn't have the Belmondo Bogart persona, but he's got the trench coat and and the hat, uh, and so just. Just in terms of the iconography of the film, maybe if I could put it that way, just the way he's depicted as this uh, raincoat or trench coat wearing hero, who's kind of a kind of a loner, and also as often happens in noir, um, he's caught in um, he's caught in a, a kind of a double cross. Uh, he gets hired. You know, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the situation out of the past. You know, he gets hired to do one thing, and people are always double crossing each other. It seems in noir, so you're never you're never sure who to trust. Uh, and so he moves in this kind of shadowy world of, You know, you can't really be sure who who your allies are, if anybody's your ally. And so ultimately your only loyalty can be to yourself, but then inevitably you get drawn into some kind of connection or affection for somebody else, even though it may not necessarily be good for you. So I think, and even the fact that he's named Jeff Costello, right, he's given this entirely American name that kind of sets him apart as, it's almost like he's an American detective or killer that's been dropped into, into Paris.
0: Well, and one of the things you said that I, that, that, that really feels, it's, it's probably my favorite thing of, of the noirs that I've seen is um, you said the phrase moves through the world. That there is this sense in these that it's this character moving through a world that either they don't understand um, and they're learning about and is sort of unraveling in front of them, or in this case it's less that Jeff doesn't understand this world and more that we don't understand it and this movie's not interested I and mean, this is a quality of it it's not interested in telling you too much about the world so you go into that the the initial job that he's on And he kills this guy and you don't know who he who that you know that guy runs this this nightclub but you don't know anything about who this person is other than because of the nature of his job he seems like a potentially seedy underworld character and jeff is clearly that but so like you get to that for that 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 first kill and you're like i don't know who the main character is i've been following around i don't know who he just killed, I know a lot about how he did it. There's a lot of procedure in this. Um, and I, and I, so I kind of love that, that even though uh, Jeff doesn't seem like an outsider to this world, as a viewer we're still put in, um, put in as an outsider to this world and we're not, we're, we're, we need to piece together things. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's not explained and I kind of love that.
1: Well, you know, and, and of course, Jeff doesn't know the guy he kills either. I mean, that's sort of the point, right? The first time he's ever saw the guy is, is, is when he kills him. Uh, two more noir elements and then one kind of non-noir element from American films. Um, another noir element is obvious is smoking. Um, people smoke all the time in noirs. That's, that's just what they do. Um, and the other element is, is the rain sometimes the rain during the day sometimes the rain at night noirs love 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 rain in fact there's a there's another french noir i think it's called a rainy sunday afternoon that takes takes place exclusively in the rain i mean there's no there's not a scene a film that doesn't have rain in it but but the other thing that and you alluded to this a minute ago sam the other way in which it's not exactly a noir is it's also a police procedural it's almost as though Melville is taking two different genres, um, both closely related, or two different sets of tropes, closely related, and creating two different worlds that then kind of collide with each other. So you have the world of you have the underworld in which through which Jeff moves. Although evidently up to this point in his career unscathed, he doesn't have a criminal record, so he's as invisible to the police in a sense as he is to the rest of society. So you have that noir world, but then you've got this world of police procedural um very different very different um architectures right the police station looks very different from say jeff's room so you have this so melville is really interested in kind of bringing those two things uh together
0: absolutely um and the other big influence on this movie um again and the title points to this i presume is japanese samurai movies i mean that this is you know because i'd heard of this movie before and i remember Seeing it on a list, I don't know. Is, th- is this on the Sight and Sound list? I think it is.
1: It probably is. I haven't checked. Yeah. I would imagine. I think it is.
0: I've definitely seen this title before, and um, and then I remember clicking on it and seeing the image of Jeff Costello and thinking, "Is that a mistake? <laughs> the movie's called The Samurai, and it's and I'm <laughs> seeing this guy with a trench coat and hat, and it's and then um, so clearly, and then even the um, the kind of opening quote on the screen here, which is. Uh, something uh, uh, something Melville created. It's not an actual yeah. quote from a um, <clears throat> uh, from a text, but the, the quote says, "There is no solitude greater than the samurai's, unless perhaps it is that of a tiger in the jungle." Um, so that sets you up, and you see that over the scene of him of uh, his room. And I and what I love about that shot is it's it's a long shot, and it takes a long time. For me to realize jeff's in the shot like i'm just looking at this room and all of a sudden i realize on the bed there is. it's sort of like mm-hmm. when you're in the uh when you're out in the forest i've never been in a jungle but when you're out in the forest and you think you're alone and then all of a sudden you realize oh there is an there is an animal right there and i didn't even realize it was there i feel that way about that opening shot of seeing looking at that room and and it's it's a pretty it's a really like desaturated but beautiful shot it's almost black and white and then you realize. Someone is in this room, and I didn't even know it.
1: Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that about the desaturation. That he really is filming um, a black and white film in color, or a color film in in black and white. It's really interesting choice. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about about the samurai is a title and as a kind of um, a kind of pseudo samurai ethic. When um, when Melville went to offer the film to Delon, and Delon was a pretty big star at that time, he. He'd made a big splash in the early 60s in France. He'd gone to Hollywood to try to become a big American star. and For some reason, Americans never quite went for him. So he came come back to France, but he was still pretty big. And um, Melville went to his house to offer him the script of La Samurai. And so he, stood there, he sat there and he read it to Delon. After about seven or eight minutes, Delon stopped him and said, you've been reading for a while now and I haven't had a line. Um, and Melville thought that was going to be the rejection, but instead Delon, uh, beckoned him into his bedroom. And it turns out that Delon's bedroom was, was decorated in a Japanese style. And he in fact had a samurai sword hanging over the head of the bed. Uh, so he knew, it. he knew at that point that that was, that was the film he was going to make. So I think the notion of the film being called the Samurai is um, if, it, if it's eluded any kind of samurai, it's more the ronin, the, uh, the masterless samurai, the samurai who actually doesn't serve anyone but, but, him, but himself. And it's this notion of the kind of um, almost minimalist, very disciplined, very contained approach to uh, life that Jeff has.
0: And I, I I love that the the story about the about the script because the the overwhelming sense you get especially at the start of this movie. But actually, if I think about the whole movie, is it is such a quiet movie and it's such a slow, deliberate movie. And, and what I love about that is it teaches you everything about Jeff that you don't. That this is a movie that doesn't give you access to Jeff's mind through Mm -hmm. his words at least Mm -hmm. um and i love that you know i love that there is no you know jeff voiceover which you might get in a noir like you get no you get no narration in this instead it is all watching him and 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 you know at first you'll watch him do something and it's like i'm not sure what he's doing and then slowly you realize what he's doing even the way he builds the alibi you know over the course of the first 15 or 20 minutes of the movie um, you pay- I mean, you start to realize, like, oh, he wants to be noticed now. He doesn't want to mm-hmm. be noticed now. I loved the um, when he steals the first car, which made me think of Breathless, because in in Breathless, he steals the car so easily, and in this, it's so deliberate. And he just pulls out this ring of a hundred keys and very slowly just tries each key until one works. Um, and 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 just and even his movements, like he's he's there are there are moments and maybe this is also tiger like there are moments when he sort mm-hmm. of pounces into action but very often he is just very deliberate and very slowly like going through what he needs to do to uh to reach what he's trying to accomplish you know in that moment and i love the way you see all that play out and then you when you get to the police station you see all of the things that he did and how that creates this perfect, like not only alibi but double alibi, um, by knowing who's going to be where when, um, and nobody ever says anything about it. You just, I mean, this is this is maybe the ultimate show don't tell. Like it's just, <laughs> I'm going to show you this stuff, and it's going to all make sense. You, but you need to kind of trust the film that that this is where this is headed.
1: Yeah, the the, the control is so no, noteworthy. Uh, one of one of the one of the critics that I saw talking about the film said. Um, I, I can't he says I can't use any other word except coolness. It's like he he's cool in both senses of the word. He's always under control. Even when he's nervous, you can tell that he's he's a man who can complete he appears to be able to completely contain his emotions. I mean even the moment towards the end when uh, he's in his uh, his room and the guy, uh, sticks the gun through the glass, right? And even then, he startles a little bit, but he never he never loses control. And I think that's what's really, um, I guess that's what's compelling about him. I mean, you know, we know as we do with Michelle in in, ba- in Breathless that he's a bad guy, um, but but he's a guy that we I don't know I kind of like being with him. I, I like I like the way that he carries himself, and I like the way that he doesn't get thrown by any, by anything. Um, so he's almost got, I don't know if superhero is the wrong word, but he's got these extraordinary qualities that even though he's using them for a bad end, uh, he's still, uh, he's still compelling.
0: Well, and you know why I think that's so effective and and and, uh, and we can see it in the scene where the, uh, the other hitman or whatever comes to, comes to get him. And there's the break of the window is this movie is, does such a great job of building tension in moments because it's quiet. You're kind of waiting for like. The, the the noose to tighten. You're waiting for things to happen. And then when you get something like him breaking through that window with the gun, I'm more startled than Jeff is. Jeff is startled, but I'm more startled than Jeff. So I looked at him to be like, well, he seems cool. So like I should, I should somehow calm down too. And, like he is, he's our guide through this world. I think in, in that way. And, and I, that's one of the, the, the things that I think the, the silence, um, of the movie helps to create is that tension as you're going through uh each scene so i think about like i loved the police station scene um i want to know is that anything like a real space or was that created as some sort of nightmarish underworld (laughs) station where it's like it's all doors and he keep and the 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 police chief keeps just going through different doors winding around Um, and, and it's like, it's like you're watching, you get to watch him set the traps as well, um, in that moment. And then it, 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 it it leads up to these, the kind of, um, uh, um, the scene where the, the scenes where there are witnesses looking at Jeff. So the, um, uh, the, the guy who, um who was at Jeff's girlfriend's house at at, mm. at 2 a.m., like, when, when he does the thing where he's, like, you know, change hats, and and then the guy goes through and basically builds Jeff out of the pieces there, yeah. to, you know, and it's, like, and that's this, this moment, and you don't even get a, you don't get a change of expression from Jeff, even though that should be, like, the greatest, you know, home run celebration of all time that he managed to create this situation where even though the police chief is doing all of these things, it's still points right back uh, still that 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 was that you know that sort of perfect part of the alibi but then you get to the point where the piano player is there and she is the one person who we know saw Jeff everybody Mm -hmm. else you could say well he was in the background and they noticed somebody walking but like but she saw him saw him and when she says no that's when the movie like turns in in a direction you don't expect because you realize either he knows her or she knows something but this story's not what I thought it was. And I loved that moment.
1: Yeah, it, it, it adds a, a great layer of, of mystery. And uh, yeah, in terms of that French station, uh, I don't know about the physical layout of the French, of the French police station, uh, Sam, but I have read or did, did hear somewhere that the, the the practice of the lineup is much more American than French. So that may be one of, another one of the ways in which Melville is kind of tying into to American cinema and American culture. But the, the, the other thing I want to say about, about Jeff's demeanor or Jeff's approach to life is another influence on this film, which we talked a little bit about in uh, when we talked about Breathless. And that is I think that the I think the shadow of um, French existentialism uh, lies o- over the film. And I think that it's it's very difficult. You know, earlier I was saying, you know, praising Jeff for being so cool, calm, and collected. But I think there's a short there's a short distance from that to kind of acting out of a kind of despair uh, or a kind of surrender to the meaninglessness of existence. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, as we think about the arc that that character takes, why he ends up where he ends up, um, it's an act of self, um, well, I mean, it's classically suicide by cop. Um, but, but, but it's a, it's a deliberate act of self-sacrifice. Um, and it's hard to know. And I don't think you can, I don't think you actually can distinguish whether it's because he cares for the piano player for some reason, which is another way. I thought another direction that plot thread could have taken or whether he is just tired of, of his life. And if you really have detached yourself from your life, I, I mean, one of my favorite scenes, if you were going to ask. One of my favorite scenes is when he encounters the other hitman and he's got the gun to his head. And he says, "I don't talk to a man with a gun in his hand." He says, "Is that a rule?" No, oh, it's a habit. I just I just I just love that. I just love that scene, the way he seems completely but but is that is that a man who's so brave he doesn't care or is it a man who has kind of given up on life and doesn't really matter? I think again, you can read it either way
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other things that seems like it's a uh, a metaphor of sorts in the movie that I wanted to ask you about is the bird in the cage in Jeff's apartment. Yeah. Um, uh, because that is that's the first sound you hear in the movie when you're when you get that that opening shot is you hear the bird in the cage. and then the bird also is um <laughs> <I> mean <laughs> is the one of the things that tips Jeff off to the fact that, people have been in his apartment um, because I love, I actually love those two guys. Um, I believe those are, are those cops or are those, I think those are yeah, cops. They're, right? they're cops. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, but just there also it's, you get to see these guys and like, Oh, Jeff's not the only one who is this deliberate and this like careful about everything. They don't say a word. Even that guy's got the ring of keys as he's breaking into like, it's like, they're like other versions of him. So you realize Jeff is is this lone figure but there are maybe other figures like this you know um who are you know in in paris as well you know working uh, working at, at odds with him so i love i love that scene because it's as quiet and deliberate um and there's even the thing where they hang the one the one listening device and he tests it and then he goes and gets the other. I just, I just, I love, I love how slow everything is here, but then the, the bird is the thing that tips Jeff off to that. So do you have thoughts on the bird?
1: Yeah. And before the bird, I just want to say one thing. I love, I, I love what you pointed out about the cops coming along with their own ring of keys. Uh, it reminds me of one of the, my favorite uh, quotes in Joseph Conrad in the secret agent, where he's talking about, uh, the police versus, uh, spies. Uh, and the narrator calls them counters in the same game, um, and it's really interesting. So when Jeff uses a ring of keys to seal a car, that's a crime. But when the police use a ring of keys to get into his apartment, that's that's order. That's order. Uh, okay. So yeah, I think the bird functions in three ways, uh, and I think each each kind of serves a different function. Um, the first one is is a pretty obvious metaphor, right? Um, because the bird in the cage is a image of Jeff in his room. Uh, which is also an image of Jeff in his world. I mean, Jeff is in a cage uh, and he does his best to fight his way out of it. Ultimately, he's not hes not able to. Uh, and then as you also suggested, the bird is a kind of canary in the mind for Jeff. Every, every time he comes into the room, he can tell because the bird is stressed out and is pulling out its feathers, he can tell that something is, something is wrong. So the bird is a kind of alarm alarm for him. But thirdly, I, I, I wanna suggest that the, what's happening, it's almost a, a picture of Dorian Gray kind of situation where I think what's happening to the bird externally kind of suggests to maybe what might be going on with Jeff internally. If, if I think there's an arc that Jeff is on that leads into some kind of suicide, I could argue, I think I will argue, I am arguing, uh, that the bird is a kind of index of that. I also have to tell you a very sad, uh, conclusion for the bird, which is shortly after the film was made, uh, Melville studios burned down. Uh, and the only tragedy of the fire was that poor bird that was evidently living in the studios.
0: Oh, my. (laughs) Um, so this seems like a movie, um, I, I mean, I felt this way watching breathless, um, I, I, this seems like the type of movie that you can see being very influential. I mean, again, this feels like a movie I could imagine watching, and somebody saying, "Oh, I want to make a movie like that." Or there's something about this world. Um, there, there's elements of the of the of the world oddly that remind me of Tarantino. Even though this is the least talky movie I've ever seen, and Tarantino's characters can't help but talk. But but like, but clearly, this is, you know, he's interested in samurai movies. He's interested in French New Wave. I'm sure this is a movie that. Um, that 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 he leans on. Can you think of other uh, of of films that are influenced by this?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, probably the most obvious one is is a director that I actually really don't know very well at all. But that would be uh, the Hong Kong director John Woo. Um, I mean, Wu in fact says in an essay he wrote, he says Melville is God to me, uh, and he talks about how uh, how he just he says when I first saw the film it was a shock his technique and cool narrative style were incredibly fresh. And as he says, this wonderful description, I felt like I was watching a gangster film made by a gentleman. Um, and Wu actually identified three of his own films that are most directly influenced by The Samurai. And he said, obviously the most Melvillian of his films would be The Killer, which was a 1979 a Hong Kong film. He also said Hard Boiled and Bullet in the Head um, were influenced by Melville uh, as well. Um, there's, there's kind of three groups of filmmakers. So, like, there's the Asian filmmakers, people like John Woo. Uh, there's the European filmmakers, people like Wim Wenders or Fassbender. And then you mentioned Quentin Tarantino, which I would also have, have mentioned, even though it's not the talkiness. I think I think to a certain extent is the fact that both of them are such cinephiles, and and both of them, you know, they kind of raid. I mean, what's what's interesting about Tarantino, as you know, is he raids the genres that are considered kind of less than. Um, uh, less than artistic, less than aesthetically valuable, you know, the, the B-movies. And, and Melville is in that same vein. The other, the other big influence, and this is a film I wish that we could talk about together, but we're restricting ourselves to films that people can see on Netflix or, or Amazon. So I'll just mention it. But the natural follow-up to this film is, is Jim Jarmus' um, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai with um, uh, Forrest Whitaker. That's a film I really, really like. Uh, So if our uh, listeners have access to seeing films in other places, um, I would highly recommend you go directly from La Samurai to to Ghost Dog, uh, which is a film that really tries to be much more deliberate in its um, adherence to kind of a samurai code. But that's that's an amazing film that also has a really interesting uh, racial commentary kind of built
0: into it. There's another movie that I thought of that, pairs nicely with this and i don't i i'm not saying i think this is an influence but it's a movie i kept thinking about watching jeff um and and it's a movie that is also i think very slow and deliberate and is interested in the procedures that characters take um, i think this movie would pair really interestingly with no country for old men um just in that that there is a, well like especially like when jeff gets shot and then he come jeff and Jagger are they're very different people but there is something about like the the way they move through the world the the how uh, deliberate and particular everything is plus in that movie you get multiple people closing in on on i mean there is the this sense that like so so jeff has both the criminal underworld closing in on him, trying to take him out—at least, at least initially—and the police closing in on him. And if you think about uh, Llewellyn Moss in *No Country for Old Men*, you have Jagger and you have the police trying to find him. There is just this sense of, like, I think it's—it's it's the sense of quiet and tension mixed with slow procedure that I think is really interesting to think about. You know, they're very different movies, but I think those those two movies have there's something about them that I just kept thinking about No Country as I watched this.
1: And that's a really interesting connection, Sam, especially since I think in No Country, and this is obviously because of uh, the, the novel in which the film was based by Cormac McCarthy. I think in No Country, you also have this kind of uh, sense of, if not existentialism, almost nihilism hanging over the film. If you think about you know, Tommy, Tommy Lee Jones's uh, speech at the end, you know, there's kind of this sense that, you know, you're looking deeply into an abyss. Uh, and I think there's a way in which Jeff is looking into an abyss as well.
0: Um, I, I, I was thinking about the the Jeff character. and um again, all these things I'm saying, I mean them as compliments to this movie. But like, what I like about this story is you get to the end. And I sort of wonder, like, did Jeff's <clears throat> life did this story matter? You know, he goes and does this hit, and he doesn't even necessarily know what it's about. He goes, does these other things. He sacrifices himself at the end or, or, you know, commits a kind of ritualistic suicide at the end by creating this situation where he's going to get killed. Um, and I like that. I like that it, That I, I'm left sort of thinking, okay, because I don't know who the people are around it, like, like, what does this mean or what does this matter? I like that it asks me that question without giving me a lot of pieces to necessarily, like, make a case in that way, if does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and I, and I think it is, you know, you alluded to this earlier too. I think it is that can be a characteristic of some of the Hollywood noirs. You have some that have this voiceover narration that kind of explain things. but then you have others that kind of just leave you to try to figure it out yourself. And it to me, it also connects the film a little bit with um, with Gosford Park, where we talk about a film that treats the audience like it's intelligent. Uh, and want you to actually kind of really think about what's what's happening and doesn't give you any kind of easy answers. Um, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I, I remember during the film, you know, trying to I, I couldn't figure out how he was constructing the alibi at first. And I kind of got that. I couldn't get what the police chief was getting at with the with uh, with with scrambling the, the hat and the, and the coat. And then I kind of got it. So I just love the way that in a sense, what Melville does is he, he kind of gives you a series of puzzles and then put some of it together but then he's kind of expecting you to sort of figure out the other the other part of it so i think that's one of the reasons why the film works so well i think because it really engages uh the audience of course if you're not willing to be engaged if you're not willing to do that work you're probably going to find it
0: kind of off-putting i also think it's interesting that jeff we're, we were given indications that he clearly has some sense of relationship with other people mm-hmm. i mean the the character of Jane were led to believe that, they're, that they they have some sort of relationship. The guy who changes the license plates out, like he clearly yeah. goes back there. They don't say, a uh, the first time they don't say a word to each other, the second time I think he says something like, this is the last time or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's also funny because everything you see about Jeff, like I can't imagine him having a relationship at the same time, other than with the bird. I feel like the bird is a close relationship. <laughs> so okay. so I, I find that really interesting is that even that hints at, we're seeing this aspect of him, you know, we're seeing Mm. Jeff, the professional killer, but I, but it leaves me to wonder, is there another, is there, is there other pieces to him or, or is he, I mean, the, 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 that opening quote talks about the solitude of, you know, of the samurai and like, like is his life actually more solitude and those things that maybe read to us as relationships really aren't much of a relationship. And I, I like, again, I say that as a positive. I like that. I don't know.
1: Well, you know, I, I think I think Sam a common a common kind of trope in the noirs is that um, the protagonist, you know, whether the protagonist is a detective or or an actual underworld figure, or in the case of I'm thinking about one of my favorite noirs, um, "In a Lonely Place," where Humphrey Bogart is a screenwriter. Um, one of the reasons why these are guys who can't seem to sustain relationships is they actually carry around a a certain amount of self-loathing they actually don't like themselves or they don't respect themselves and in some respects they think they're not actually worthy of somebody else's affection and I, I, and I wonder about, and I may be reading that into Jeff, but I wonder about that with Jeff because that does seem to be one of the kind of recurring elements in in, in the genre. So the relationship he has with the girlfriend, who is actually his real-life wife at the time, um, you know, I, I think there's a genuine affection, but it's kind of this cliche about, you know, you can't love others until you love yourself. I don't know if that's entirely true, but there certainly is a sense in which when you don't like yourself, or you think that you are not a worthwhile human being, it is really hard to allow yourself to be committed to somebody else. And I think that's sort of the way—that's uh, sort of the way Jeff uh, perhaps looks at himself in that relationship.
0: So you talked a little bit about the ending. Do you have other thoughts or anything else you would say about that—that that ending? I really loved how I loved how that set up, and then they. Um and then when he pulls the the gun out and realizes that the the chambers are all empty because the last time we saw it we see him do something that we he's done a couple times which is to check the gun to make sure it's loaded before he goes in somewhere and then we cut away so we're assuming that's what he did there when in reality we realize well he did that to empty the gun um, before before he went in there and even little things like he checks his hat but he doesn't pick up the ticket yeah. um, and 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 he it's just it's so different than the other time he goes into that that club where he has no care about being seen he's you know like i i really love that leading and then sort of i love trying to make sense out of that that ending and seeing just that that you know that the shot of the empty chambers um you know points to saying oh this is this is a different kind of thing that he's doing than what what i thought
1: yeah no it's really wonderful the way melville sets that up for you so as you said there's there's a series of actions or non-actions that kind of tell you that this is this is the end for Jeff so beginning with that last bit of dialogue right this is the last time um, which then obviously has a very different resonance because Jeff's going to be dead Uh, and then before he checks the hat which I agree is important he turns the car off Mm. Um, and when he did the hit previously you might recall he left the car running So the fact that he turns the car off, the fact that he checks the hat, the fact that he has no qualms about being seen, you know, this all tells us it's a very deliberate um, act that he's he's about to um, commit. I like what you said earlier about it being an echo or or a reflection of a samurai ritual suicide. And the other key thing I would say is that when he dies, um, uh, Melville shot that scene twice. Um, And the first time he shot it, he dies with a smile on his face. Uh, and then Melville didn't want, didn't want that to be the case. <laughs> one, 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 one critic said because DeLon had died there with a smile on his face in another film and Melville didn't want that to be the case in his film. So there's the auteur, right? But also I, I think given the character, I don't think a smile makes sense. I, I think that dying without a smile is the right thing. And the other thing I love, the other kind of meta cinematic thing that happens, uh, after Jeff is dead and the musicians leave the stage you get a little trap, you, you get a little you know tap on the drum and a little cymbal crash. Almost like, that's the end folks, uh, as though it was, a, it was a performance. And it reminds me at the beginning of the film, something you didn't ask me about, and I'm glad you didn't because I don't have an answer, but I'm gonna point it out myself. And that is, a few after a few, after a few minutes of seeing Jeff lying on his bed, the camera kind of goes in and out. It's like it goes in and gets a little fuzzy and then it comes back out. Um, and I'm going to hazard a guess that part of that that I, I want to see that as kind of echoing the end of the film in that Melville is drawing attention to the film as a film. Um, and he's doing that both because of all the Hollywood films he's quoting and because what he does with the camera at the beginning makes you aware of the fact that I'm about to tell a story. So in a sense, that's his stand in for narration, if you will. And then at the end having the drum and the and and the symbol is like now the story's over so those are kind of within mm-hmm. the w- 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 within the frame um uh, actions that remind you that you're looking at a frame at least that's the way i think about
0: it i like that a lot because that was my thought because I'm i often watch this stuff in terms of like how how do you do how would you shoot something like that and i i was so mesmerized by that opening shot and then when the camera it, it, it's like it just barely moves back and forward and back and forward for just a second. It's like he's reminding you this is on a camera, <laughs> you know, like, like, like I, and I, I, I remember like I definitely picked up on that the, when I when I first saw it and thought, well, that's really that's really interesting. Clearly, I forgot about it by the time I got later in the movie, but I do remember in the moment thinking that's a really interesting choice because you have such a still such a still shot there.
1: It's it's also in this and this may be completely uh, the product of my own ma- imagination. It also reminds me a little bit of the camera work in Vertigo when Scotty is going up the tower. Mm. Um, and, and it, it could be I'm I'm reaching a bit here, but it could be a suggestion that there is a kind of vertigo that's leading Jeff to his death. Sure, sure. Do you have other things you
0: want to talk about with this film?
1: I wanna I wanna mention one other thing, and I, I have not I have not done a huge amount of research on this film so it may well be that some critic somewhere has pointed this out that usually happens with any of my ideas but I, I i think in the scene when well both scenes when jeff um uh shoots somebody right in in the opening the first scene when he kills marty and then later on i think the the jump cut that you get there i think it's actually melville quoting uh breathless hmm. because you, you get the same disorientation in space like the the cut from from the object to the gun is, is completely discontinuous in, in space. And even in sound, it's like, it's like the, the sequence seems off. It seems like, how could Jeff have possibly fired the gun before the other guy fired his gun? And I just, I just have to believe that that is Melville kind of returning the compliment to his student, Gadar. Because um, both of those shots just reminded me so much of Michelle shooting the policeman in Breathless. It just seemed like it couldn't be accidental.
0: I like that a lot. I like that a lot.
1: The final thing I want to leave you with is um, when there was a retrospective of Melville's films a couple of years ago in New York. um, I just love what Anthony Lane said about it. He says, um, this is how you should attend the forthcoming retrospective of Jean-Pierre Melville movies. Tell nobody what you are doing. Even your loved ones, especially your loved ones, must be kept in the dark. If it comes to a choice between smoking and talking, smoke dress well but without ostentation wear a raincoat buttoned and belted regardless of whether there is rain any revolver should be kept until you need it in the pocket of the coat finally before you leave home put your hat on if you don't have a hat you can't go (laughs) i i think in one paragraph that completely encapsulates the the world of a melville film
0: that that leads me right into uh my my last question which is yeah, if somebody really liked this and wanted to go deeper with Melville, what, uh, what would be the next watch?
1: I would watch his next film, Army of Shadows. I think that's definitely the next way to go from 69.
0: Fantastic. Well, this was great. What do you have for us for next week?
1: Uh, complete change of pace, Sam. Um, despite your suggestion about No Country for Old Men, we're not going to pivot that way. Um, I'm going to go to a, uh, an animated film from 1973 called Fantastic Planet. Um, and I, I don't know if people are aware of this film, but I think it's, it's an, it's an amazing and influential piece of animation. And so quite different from anything we've done lately. So, uh, that's what we got on, on, on tap
0: i'm excited because i have never heard of this i have yeah so this 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 should be this should be very fun barrett thank you so much for uh for recommending this film for having this uh this conversation this is a movie that sometimes the movies you recommend i love but they're challenging and i kind of need to put some work into like Figuring out why I love them this one. I just loved like I real just from the very beginning. I loved how silent it was Um, This is my kind of movie. So I I I just really 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 enjoyed this So thank you so much for recommending this Um, That is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about fantastic planet in the video store